<laughs> Never mind. God's good. Forgiveness is rich. <laughs> and chairs are fixable. <laughs> anyway, um, that's a very powerful story. Yeah. Why did you, when you came to think of this passage, did you happen already to know Asha's story? Or what made you choose Asha as the person to depict this story of the woman who interrupts Jesus, who's on a mission to go to heal a little girl who's sick and this woman comes up behind him in the crowd and, and touches the edge. Um, so let's start with, with why Asha, how did you come, how did yeah, that come I, about? I, I knew bits of Asha's story uh, in advance. Um, uh, one of, I think one of the, the favourite things I have about working um, when the cafe's open uh, in the church is just getting to know people. Uh, getting to know folks in the, the church community, getting to know folks in the cafe community. And the more I get to know people, the, the more you just see God at work in people's lives. And Ash has been an astonishing example of that. Um, and uh, I had thought of uh, having Asha in a uh, we were talking about having her in one of the previous videos, um, talking a little bit about her story, but I, I, I'd actually got Ross to, to hang on because I thought, actually, maybe it, if she's willing, it might be interesting to have her as the, the focal point uh, of, of, of this piece. And um, it, it just kind of came together. Uh, and, you know, Again and again, people have commented to me on, on that painting about Ash's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's, you know, there's just something in her eyes that uh, that just say so much. Yeah. And I uh, really wanted to, to get something across in the painting, not, not just about a gentle touch of the hem of Jesus' garment, but really about clinging on to Jesus. Yeah, I was going to comment on that because probably if anyone was to take issue, they would say, yeah, but in the Bible, she just touched the edge. It was just a, just a wee light touch, but, but you've got her full-on grab. Yeah, that really felt appropriate. You know, with, with any of the paintings, going right back to doing the, the Last Supper painting, um, it always feels like there's two things going on. There's, there's the story that we have in the Bible and, and then there's the, the people that we get to know and, and, and that we get to meet. Um, and, and both of those things are, are, are coexisting in the, in the paintings. Um, the story from the Bible and, and the story from the people that, that I meet and I'm inspired by. Hmm. You, you mentioned her eyes. Well, let me push you on it. What, what is it that you think that you know, what is it about her eyes, about that look that you've captured that you see there, do you think? It's hard to put it into words. Um, the, there's, there's really just something, get, getting to know Asha over time, uh, you know, I really just see the, uh, the, the desire to persevere. Yep. Uh, and there's, there's really something in, in her eyes that really sings about that. Yeah. I mean, just watching the film, nice job, Ross, thank you. Um, what strikes me is, is just the incredible courage and vulnerability 
of telling your story and putting yourself out there with all the tragedy that obviously she has lived through and some of it have been decisions that she's made and a lot of it is just things that happened in a world of, of, of chaos and so on. But uh, incredibly vulnerable. Um, and I don't know, you know, where do you think that resonates with the story of the woman? I mean, obviously you chose Asher because you saw a, a parallel, a, a context there. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think there's... Bravery for me is not about fearlessness. Mm. Uh, it's about being scared and doing it anyway. Mm. Uh, Asha had, uh, a few months ago, given her testimony at an event at the Scottish Parliament. She was terrified mm. and did it anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think about this this woman and the story and, uh, do you know, when, when people are saying, well, who was this person that touched Jesus? There's a massive crowd. You could easily just sink back. And it sounds like in this story, you know, this woman who was healed was so scared to go forward and present herself and ask for being healed. She, she just wanted to touch uh, the hem of Jesus' garment, you know, not not interact in any way, but uh, went forward and did that in fear, uh, and our faith was rewarded. Mm. Absolutely. Okay. Ian, you've done another excellent painting. Um, thank you so much for, for doing that. Um, if, you, if you want to ask um, Ian any questions later on or, or chat to him about this or any of his paintings, please do that. We'll probably need to move on, but thank you. And Ross, thank you. Much. Let's just say thank you to these guys for their tremendous work. Now, I've just left my laptop in the office and I need it, so excuse me, just talk amongst yourselves for 10 seconds. Okay, so we're going to hear again the passage which we heard in the in the film there. So it's uh, if you want to follow, and there's Bibles here on the platform or on the table at the end there if you want to read along, or there's some on the table at the back. But Luke chapter 8, reading there, verse 40. So we'll read the whole story again. Let's hear God's word. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, 
The crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. He laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Amen. May God bless this word to our understanding. So we have this story. I asked you at the beginning when we gathered today to talk about your experience of going to secondary school. The reason I did that was because I wanted to ask you to remember what it felt like being 12. You were maybe 11, but you were around about 11, 12. First year at secondary school is generally when we turn 12. And so that's the age and stage, just a child really wanting to feel big and, and important and get it right at big school, but tumbling down a flight of stairs and, and sitting through the morning with blood running down your legs. Or just the stuff that happens to us. And two 12-year stories, really, not just one, because this girl was 12 years old when one of any number any one, any one of a number of diseases that afflicted and plagued people in that culture hit her. Life was cheap, mortality was common, and life expectancy was short. If you made it to your late 40s, that was a good age. So Anna, that we read of in the birth narrative, who was her 84, was spectacularly old. She was telegram-style old. But mostly people died younger because there were no uh, antibiotics. Medicine was in its infancy. The treatments were primitive. And there's a little bit in this story which is included as a footnote. Some manuscripts after the words that say that the woman had been afflicted with bleeding for 12 years go on to say, uh, and she had spent all she had on doctors. Now, if that was genuine statement, it was very brave of Luke, who was himself a doctor, to put that in. <laughs> and so, a girl of 12 had died, or was dying, and a woman had been afflicted with bleeding for 12 years. And so, 
whilst one life had been uh, growing, developing, budding into maturity and hope and promise and expectation. And age 12 was the age when a girl in uh, Jewish society would uh, become a woman. She could expect, age 12, that within the next year or two she would be betrothed and she would be married. And so for her this was the cusp. 12 uh, going on 13 was the age when boys had their uh, bar mitzvah and became adult males. Girls likewise by this stage were almost marriageable. And so she's on the cusp of being married and having children and beginning an adult life. Meanwhile, the woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years was in all probability either unmarried or divorced. Because it wasn't permissible, according to the Jewish law, for a woman who was bleeding during her monthly period to have sexual intercourse. And therefore, for a woman who was constantly bleeding, and were it's not unreasonable to suppose that this was a gynecological disorder. We might, maybe, I don't know. I don't know what it, what it was. There are people here who might know better than me. Endometriosis or something, I have no idea. But because she was not able to have, uh, to have a, a sexual relationship, she would not have been able to marry. And therefore, if she had been married at 12, 13, 14 herself, she may have been divorced. Or she may just never have been able to marry. And so here is a woman who for the past 12 years, let's argue for her adult life. Maybe she was older, we don't know how old she was. But certainly for a significant period of her adult life, had known her life ebbing away from her. Any hope she had had of getting married any hope she had had of having children. And that was, in that society, in that structure, a woman's place. To marry and have children, that was how they understood their role. But not only was she hemorrhaging her hope and expectations for her life and her future, for having any sons or a husband who would provide for her, look after her, she was hemorrhaging her finances because for 12 years she'd spent all she had trying to get a cure and had spent all of her money on doctors and all to no avail. And so her hope and her expectations, her finances, and because Jewish law forbade contact with other people whilst Someone whilst a woman was bleeding or there was any kind of bodily discharge. Leviticus 15 is, is graphic in its explanation of the do's and don'ts of, of certain situations. And it makes it quite clear. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. They, will wash, they must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean 
till evening. And so this woman, loss of hope and expectation, loss of life and a future, loss of health and robustness, because to lose blood persistently like that was a physically debilitating and exhausting condition. In fact, it's perhaps a miracle that she survived 12 years with that condition in that society, without iron supplements, etc., etc. But also she suffered the expected social isolation of somebody who could not, was not allowed to mix freely in society with that condition in all conscience because the law forbade it. And so we, we have this picture of a woman and we hear Asha's story and it's not at all like that but nonetheless we can understand the context of Asha's story which isn't so far away from it. Someone whose experience of life was just being the, the hemorrhaging of hope and, and relationship, the descent into alcohol and drug addiction and homelessness and, and breakdown of relationship and just the flow, the loss, the ebb rather, not the flow, the ebb of everything that she might have hoped for as a young girl of 12, let's say. But of course, in Asha's story, it was when she was 12 that she started taking drugs. So age 12 played a part for Asha too. And so we have this woman. And let's leave her for a moment and think about Jairus, the synagogue leader. A man of standing and status and prestige. A man of importance in the community. In the same way that in the olden days, the lawyer, the doctor, the teacher and the minister were, you know, the four uh, figureheads in any smaller local community. The people who were the authorities that others looked up to. The people that took, others took their lead from. And Jairus represented the Jewish law, the synagogue tradition. And there were Pharisees already at this stage who were none too pleased about Jesus. None too pleased about the extent to which people were going after him. None too pleased about the extent to which Jesus was having an influence on their people. And so the Pharisees were not fans. And so a synagogue ruler who came and fell on his knees, no mean thing, before Jesus, this renegade preacher from Nazareth, was risking far more than his pride. But he was driven by a desperation. Wrestling with the conflict inside that on the one hand, the jury was still out on this Jesus, but on the other hand, his 12-year-old girl was at the point of death and he needed a miracle. And the only person that he knew of who was dealing in miracles was Jesus of Nazareth. And so at that particular point in the story, two 12-year-old life cycles were ebbing away. Girl in whom all the hope and expectation, or much of it, of her family had been placed for future prospects and grandchildren and life still to come. And the woman whose life had been ebbing away from hope to despair, perhaps, And so we have this journey where Jairus begs 
And Jesus goes and in the crush in the crowd of people enthusiastically following to see another miracle or what might happen. This woman deliberately presented herself in the crowd. Let me ask you a simple and obvious question which we take for granted. What was she doing in that crowd? What on earth was a woman who knew that contact, physical contact with other people was going to contaminate them and make them ceremonially unclean doing in that crowd? And so she, in some respects, it seemed, was ignoring for this purpose. We don't know it because we have no answers to the question exactly why she was there when the law said she shouldn't have been But I've actually been thinking about this passage and come to see this woman in a whole other light. And if you want a a crystal moment, if you want a, a touchstone moment, it was the fact that when she touched the edge of Jesus' garment, she was healed. Why is that a, a significant moment? For the very reason that the other people crowding around Jesus, inadvertently touching him, brushing against his clothing and so on, perceived and received no transformation or effect. Now you might say, well, maybe they weren't sick. Well, maybe they weren't. I once went swimming in a dead sea and I didn't think I had any cuts on my body. You want to find out if you've got any cuts in your body, you walk into the dead sea. The salt will get to it in nanoseconds. And so out of all of that crowd of people, it's hard to imagine that they were all 100% healthy with 20-20 vision and no faculties impaired. Nobody else reported a miracle except her and she didn't report it. What was the difference? The difference was because this woman, despite 12 years of watching, feeling and knowing her life ebbing away, did exactly what Asha's doing in that painting. Yes, she touched. Presumably she reasoned with herself that if I don't touch him, but just his clothing, and if I just touch the edge, it will be enough to secure what I need, but hopefully without contaminating too much the one whom I'm touching. I don't know her thought processes. But what I do know is that this woman, despite the depletion of everything else, body, mind, Social that might have been hers was a plucky, risky, courageous woman who when she touched Jesus didn't just place her fingers on his clothing but she connected her deep, powerful, certain, bold, courageous, risk-taking faith with the Son of God. She did not stay at home saying, well, if he hears about me, maybe he'll come and heal me. She did two things, at least. She said, I believe that I can be healed by this man. And she said, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get what Jesus has got because I need it. You see, I think Jesus loves it 
when with faith and courage and risk, we dare to believe and dare to lay hold and say, Jesus, only you can make a difference. Jesus, only you can help. Jesus, only you can bring transformation and hope and life. Only you can sort out the mess I've made and the mistakes I've made. She was a risk taker. If she was a good girl who played it safe, she would have stayed back home and not bothered anyone, least Jesus. You could argue she was a thief in the crowd. What did she hope to do? She hoped to steal her healing from Jesus and slip away unnoticed. She hoped that she might take what she knew Jesus could give her. And she accessed it because she decided that if she just connected with Jesus, she would have what she really needed. There's something very feisty about that woman. (laughs) For all her touch reads as being very gentle and tentative. The smallness of her touch is matched by the enormity of her faith. Let's think about it reasonably. If you want a big miracle, what do you think you're going to have to do? I would think if I want a big miracle, I'm going to need a full-on big touch. Two hands, maybe a hug, wrap myself round, soak all the healing, the power that there might be. But the fact that she went to Jesus knowing that just this much on the edge of his robe would be enough is a measure of the size of her faith. Just this much. Like the centurion who said, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. And she would have received and did receive her healing for free. This free touch that she took, this stolen blessing that she grasped. She was taking for free what she paid for for years to no avail from doctors. Because she knew she could. And Jesus, knowing that power had gone out from her, from him to her, stopped in his tracks and asked the question that made her freeze in her tracks and realize she was busted. This faith pickpocket. Where Jesus rounded on her. My brother was riding the subway in Barcelona once. And uh, at one point when the subway train pulled into the station, Uh, he realized that there was a hand in his pocket (laughs) and it wasn't his. (laughs) The hand where his wallet was kept and just in time he managed to grab the wrist in amongst the crowd and the throng of people that were on the subway and traced the wrist to its source (laughs) and found this young woman looking terrified who managed by fighting and pulling and yanking to wriggle herself free and get out the doors just as the doors closed because that's how pickpockets work. Seize the moment and the opportunity to grab what they can because once she's off that train, there's not anything you can do. 
She operates by stealth, this woman. But Jesus wants to give her a bigger gift. And he says, who touched me? And realizing that she's hemmed in on every side in this crowd and Jesus is looking, she realizes there's nowhere for her to go. And perhaps suspecting that if he knows that someone's touched her and power has gone out from her, then in all likelihood he knows exactly who it was and she has nothing else to do but to come clean, busted, games up. And so she says what she's done. Fearing the censure of Jesus and the crowd because she, this woman, made unclean by her bleeding, had dared deliberately, not even just accidentally, to contaminate none other than the miracle maker. Expecting that she would get into serious trouble for her presumption. But she did not. Instead, Jesus calls her to face and admit her need of him. To face and admit her need of his healing. And to own the faith. I really admire and respect Asha's courage. Because you know there is nothing more powerful than just sharing your testimony, than standing up and saying and telling the world, this is who I am or who I was or where I've come from. And I reached out and touched Jesus and he healed me. He set me free. He delivered me. And as she said freely, it didn't just happen overnight the first time. But she kept asking. (laughs) She kept asking and coming back and persevering and pursuing Jesus. Now, I don't think for a minute that Jesus didn't hear the first prayer Asha prayed. And I don't think that there's any one of you or me here for whom that is not also true, that Jesus hears the first cry and the first prayer. But you know, sometimes Jesus' answer to that prayer It's a bit like what Honey was saying earlier on. It's like God saying, go on, ask me again. Go on, ask me. Go on, ask me. Because Jesus looks to stir our faith and our courage. And Jesus loves risk takers and those who dare to believe and take risks because of their faith in the kingdom of God. That's why he told the parable of the talents The ones who were commended in the story, the one who had five and got five more, the one who had got two talents and earned two more, were commended. Why? Because they were divine risk takers, (laughs) willing to use who they were and what they had. There's another story where a a Gentile woman, non-Jewish, comes and asks Jesus for healing for her daughter. And Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread, meaning the Jewish people, And throw it to their dogs. Not a very nice thing to say, you would think. Gentiles were regarded or called dogs. And the woman came back at him, feisty as ever, determined. And saying, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs off the ground, right? And this healing is just a crumb, that's all I need. And Jesus says, good answer, your daughter is healed. 
You see, Jesus likes feisty faith. Courageous risk-taking. Ask me, faith. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And I'm challenged by this woman. Because I often operate, and I suspect therefore some of you do it as well, by a quesera sera kind of faith. Or the Scots version is, quits for ye no go by ye. But that's passive faith. That's sitting back and letting what comes. That's Islamic faith. That's inshallah, the will of God. Let it be what it will be. But the faith we're called to and the faith this woman demonstrates is the bold faith, the courageous faith, the faith that says, all right, Jesus, let's get serious. And he says, well, I will if you will. The beautiful symbiosis in this story is that the reason why this woman was healed finally, summarily, the reason why she could be healed and restored, not just in her body, but in every way possible, was that Jesus took her bleeding. (laughs) Jesus took her bleeding. Her bleeding stopped, but his bleeding in just a relatively short time would start upon the cross, where for her and the Syrophoenician woman and Jairus' daughter and Jairus and all the people who dared to put their faith in him, he would bleed. He would bleed and with his lifeblood offer up his life in payment, in atonement, in sacrifice as a gift that we might be forgiven and called the daughters and the sons of God. And so, how bold and courageous is your faith? Are you waiting for God to find you in a corner, in a cupboard? Are you waiting for God just to assume that he knows what's going on? I'm challenged by this. I kind of want to just stand in front of that painting and look at that grab and say, what does that represent for my faith, for my relationship with God? And what might it represent for you? Because if you've never seized hold of Jesus and you're just waiting for him to come and find you and sort you out, well, you're like that woman if she might have just sat in her house waiting for Jesus to knock at the door and heal her. She went out after Jesus. She took a wee risk brushing against all the people in the crowd and making them unclean if they but knew it. An even bigger risk, deliberately landing her contamination on the Holy One of God and all of that because she dared to say, Jesus, I know you're my only hope and I'm having this. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us. We're so insipid and passive sometimes. We see our need or our problems. We're frustrated. We berate you. We're disappointed or we doubt because Things don't seem to shift and change. And yes, there are crosses we're called to carry. And there are thorns 
that aren't taken away because your grace is sufficient for us and your power is made perfect in weakness. But forgive us because sometimes we lack the courage to be free. We lack the faith to grab hold of you and say, Lord, I need your miracle. I need all that you've got. I'm clinging on and I'm not letting go because however bad the mayhem and the carnage, you are a rescuer of souls, a transformer of lives, a healer, a renewer of your children. And so Lord, would you give to us the guts, the risk-taking determination to say yes, absolutely, and to lay hold of you. And perhaps to do that again. If our hold has become a little limp, if our faith has become a little passive, forgive us, we pray. May we rise up as a people. May we rise up as a people of faith. We take you seriously. And who in the places of our deepest need have the strength and the clarity and the determination to believe that you can and you will. But that we need to push after you, push through the crowd as it were, make our presence known and felt and draw power from you by the strength of our faith and our commitment to your word and to your promise. That if we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. Lord, have your way. Have your way. That we, Lord, might be signs of what it is to live by faith. In 2017, in a society that is confident in its own ability, to fix its own ills and problems, and yet seems never to find the end of them. May we be a sign of those who know joy in our hearts because we walk by faith and not just by sight. Lord, if there are any here who have yet for the first time to say yes to Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would Stir the courage and the faith and the risk-taking spirit in their hearts to dare to believe and to risk all to follow you that they might enter into life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. At the end of the service we give opportunity for you to be prayed for by other people. And particularly if you've made some kind of decision today, and particularly if you've decided to follow Jesus, or you want to talk more about what that means or looks like, then come and have us pray for you. But we're going to worship together now. I'm not sure if we're singing the one or two. One song, one song just next. So let's stand and worship together. Mm-hmm.